Welcome to the Three P's of Cancer podcast, where we'll discuss prevention, preparedness, and progress in cancer treatments and research. Brought to you by the University of Michigan Rogel Cancer Center. I'm Scott Redding. We're here with Michigan Medicine Assistant Professor of Radiation Oncology, Daniel Wall, to talk about advanced stage and metastatic cancer. Dr. Wall is a physician scientist specializing in cancers of the central nervous system. His research focuses on the development of new treatment strategies for brain tumors, and his laboratory group is especially interested in interactions between radiation and abnormal metabolism and glioblastoma. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to start off, is there a difference between advanced stage and metastatic cancer? Yeah, that's it's, it's a good question because there are a lot of uh, terms and terminology around uh, cancer and a patient's cancer diagnosis, and it's an important to understand what is what, because doctors might use one or uh, the other, and a patient might say, like, why is he calling it this? Why is she using um, this word instead of, instead of that word? And so, yeah, just uh, for a little bit of clarity on, on that. For starters, metastatic cancer really means a cancer that has spread elsewhere in the body from its original site. And so, you know, examples of that would be, you know, a, a breast cancer uh, that started in the breast, but a spot has spread to the lungs or the bones. We would call that a metastatic breast cancer. Or same thing like a, a lung cancer that started in the lungs and then had spread elsewhere, like to the brain, would be a metastatic uh, lung cancer. And so that's really what that word means, metastatic, is, is spread elsewhere in the body. Um, and that's important because for many, but not all, cancers, metastatic implies the, the stage four diagnosis that, uh, that uh, patients might also be familiar with, but they're not always synonymous. So really, what does metastatic mean? It means spread uh, elsewhere more distantly in the body. Now, advanced stage cancers is kind of like an overlapping and different uh, term. Ad advanced stage doesn't really have a, a precise medical definition. I think the best way to, to think about the words advanced stage are cancers that we are, we as doctors think we are unlikely to cure. Okay. And so would a, a lung cancer uh, that has spread to the brain and elsewhere, would we call that an advanced stage cancer? Yes. Uh, we'd call that an advanced stage cancer. But would a large lung cancer that has only gone to the nearby lymph nodes, but that we also think we're unlikely to cure, even though it hasn't spread far um, elsewhere in the body? Yeah, we'd probably call that an advanced stage cancer um, too. So it's, it's maybe more of a less, uh, it, it's less of a precise uh, term, advanced stage cancer, and more of a you know, uh, physician or team of physicians' opinions about the likelihood of being able to, to cure this cancer. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if I think back to staging, you know, there's stage, you hear people say they have a stage one breast cancer. Um, yeah. Maybe they haven't had any other breast cancer, but they get diagnosed with a stage four. Is that considered metastatic or is that can, considered advanced or does it depend on the tumor type? Yeah, it, it's complicated because all of these uh, definitions are, are are like Venn diagrams with some amount of, of overlap. So, you know, if someone said I was diagnosed with a, a stage one breast cancer, I, I would know that this is a, you know, a, a breast cancer that is 
localized in the breast um, and hasn't uh, spread elsewhere in the body. Uh, that's how we, we use our, our staging system, this, uh, you know, stage one, two, three, four, um, as kind of uh, tools to tell us how a patient is likely to do in terms of outcome uh, with, with their cancer, how long are they likely to, to live after they're being diagnosed. And traditionally, the things that have gone into a stage, like can be how big is the tumor in, in the breast? Has it spread to any nearby uh, lymph nodes? More and more, we're starting to determine, you know, the, the look at the biology of the tumor uh, as it relates uh, to stage. And so um, is it predicted to respond to standard uh, therapies? Does it have these uh, receptors that make it more responsive to therapy that can affect the stage? But I think the the way that that we think about stage really is at the initial diagnosis of a cancer. And so, you know, the way I was always taught this is that your cancer is given its formal stage one single time at the time you are diagnosed. And so, you know, you can imagine, you know, the unfortunate situation of a patient who is diagnosed with a stage one cancer and is treated for that, has an appropriate surgery and maybe some radiation treatment and some systemic therapy, meaning chemotherapy or endocrine therapy afterwards for their breast cancer. And, you know, five years later, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, we find spread to the bones, right? And so now what was a stage one cancer five years ago has now become metastatic. And most, you know, uh, there's some uh, disagreement, but a lot of people would say you, you don't call that a stage for cancer because, well, it was stage one at diagnosis and then it spread, whereas the staging system is really to be used just at that original diagnosis of, of a cancer because that's where all of those data were, were generated. And so, you know, that's a complicated, does, does that, it's really more of a semantic issue because, you know, a patient who's uh, diagnosed with metastatic cancer up front is called, said to have a, a, a stage four cancer, but someone who you know, is, is diagnosed with a local um, cancer and then, then it spreads, you know, years later, still has metastatic disease and their treatment might be very similar, but we wouldn't necessarily call that a stage four cancer. On the, the metastatic aspect that you mentioned, if someone gets diagnosed with metastatic up front, you know, and earlier you'd mentioned that metastatic usually means it's spread from somewhere. How is that person determined what their cancer is? So, for instance, someone has uh, metastatic cancer um, with a brain tumor. Is a brain tumor their primary cancer, or could it be another cancer? And how is that determined? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. We, we see this a lot. Um, uh, sometimes uh, I see patients who you know, have maybe had a lung cancer a few years ago, had a kidney cancer um, a year ago, and more recently was diagnosed with a, a melanoma, right? And so uh, all of these things, there was a spot on their kidney, they had it taken out, it was a kidney cancer. Uh, there was a spot in their lung four years ago, they had a surgery, it was a lung cancer. And then, um, you know, a year ago, they had a melanoma on their skin, and it was uh, taken out. Um, and then maybe a year after this, they have a, a a tumor found in their brain. They, the patient has headaches or stroke-like symptoms and a scan shows a spot in the brain. And we think to ourselves, is this a tumor that started in the brain 
or is it something that started from one of these three other cancers and then went to the brain? And, and that matters a whole lot because um, it tells us which one of these cancers is behaving badly, which one hasn't been cured, and which one how should we, the treatments for all of these three cancers are very different, and how do we, uh, how do we decide which treatment uh, to give? And usually what we do in those type of situations is we work with our neurosurgeons to do a surgery and remove the tumor in the brain if it's at all safely possible. And then from that tissue that's removed in the brain, our pathologists, by doing um, molecular tests and looking under the microscope, are usually able to tell, aha, this spot in the brain came from the melanoma, or it came from the lung cancer, or it came from the kidney cancer. They can help uh, figure that out by doing either molecular testing or looking under the microscope. And then we know, uh, let's say it's from a, a, a kidney cancer, uh, then we know that, hey, this, kid, you know, this melanoma and the lung cancer are doing just fine, but the kidney cancer has spread uh, to the brain. And so now this patient has metastatic kidney cancer, and then their future treatments would be designed around kidney cancer treatments, not lung cancer treatments or melanoma treatment. So the, the big picture is if, if a patient has a, a main cancer that started in one of uh, some, some organ, a kidney cancer, and it spreads to the bones, um, and we do a biopsy of the bone and it shows kidney cancer, the way we think about that, what we call that is kidney cancer that has metastasized to the bones or renal cell cancer. We don't typically call that a bone cancer. And our treatments are designed around the, the where the cancer started, the kidney cancer treatment. It's not designed around where the cancer ends up, the, the bone cancer, for example. Bone cancers like multiple myeloma that start in the bones have very, very different treatments than kidney cancers. And all of our treatments are kind of um, designed around where the cancer started and the molecular features of the cancer and, and where it started. So in that example of kidney cancer spreading to the bones, would part of that treatment also include any kind of orthopedic oncologist involved in that care as well? Yeah, um, uh, it, it, it can. And it uh, depends on kind of which bones are involved. And so you know, when I, as a radiation oncologist, you know, I often see patients who have, you know, cancer spread to bones, but, but when it's causing pain, because our radiation treatment can often uh, relieve that pain. And one of the questions I ask myself anytime I see a patient with cancer in the bone causing pain is, does this patient need to see an orthopedic oncologist before I offer them radiation treatment? Am I the right doctor to be seeing this patient right now? And one of the ways I, I make that decision is which bone is involved and how serious is this bone involvement? And so the ones that we really worry about kind of stability or fracture, or let's make sure that this bone is strong enough before we do anything else, are, are the weight-bearing bones of the body. So those are usually the legs, the femurs. And if a patient came in and they told me that, you know, every time I step on this left leg where, where I have cancer involvement, uh, I, ha I have pain and it's been getting worse over the last week. Um, that's a patient who would, you know, get some scans on an x-ray and ask our orthopedic oncology colleagues to see them to, to talk about, does this need to be stabilized by you know, putting a little um, supporting pin in the bone, for example, before moving along with any other treatment because we really want to avoid having like a, a fracture if we can if we can avoid it something in a rib uh, that's not bearing a lot of weight you know much less likely to have involvement from an orthopedic surgeon 
you kind of talked a little bit about it earlier, but what kind of treatment options are there for those with advanced stage or a metastatic cancer? There are a lot. So we we think, you know, I guess we can bin our therapies into the two or three main local therapies, meaning treatments that we aim at a particular part of the body or we're focused on a particular area. And those are surgery, doing a, a resection of, of a cancer. And there's radiation, which is what I do, where we use high energy x-rays aimed kind of exactly where we want them to go in the body, not, not throughout the whole body. And then there's some other um, local therapies that are emerging as well, you know, uh, being able to ablate a tumor with like high uh, temperatures or radio frequencies or uh, microwave ablation to uh, use kind of localized energy to kill cancers um, in the liver or the lung or, uh, you know, gosh, sometimes even, even in the brain. So those are localized therapies. We see cancer someplace and we take it out of that place. Then the other big categories, and, and those are really typically used for more localized cancers, things that aren't spread all the way throughout uh, the body. Then there are systemic treatments, and systemic is a big category, and it, all, all it means is that the, the treatment is going throughout the body. So things that's going to go through the, the bloodstream uh, to get where it needs to go. And, you know, I think about three main categories of systemic therapy. Traditionally, chemotherapies are, are, was the, the first pillar of uh, systemic therapy. So these are things like platin that you may have uh, heard of, or doxorubicin, or uh, mitomycin C, things that interfere with uh, cancer cells' uh, ability to, to divide. And there's several ways that these work, but there, you know, people think about them as interfering with the ability of, of cancers to to divide and kill them by damaging their DNA, for example. Okay. Then the second main category of systemic therapy are so-called um, targeted therapies. And these are small molecules that have been designed to interfere with precise signaling pathways within cancer. So not like a chemotherapy that's going to go in and damage, you know, a whole bunch of the DNA in the cancer so that it dies and also, you know, uh, kills some nearby normal, you know, normal cells as well, because everything has, has DNA. And, but, but these targeted therapies, people have used information to, to figure out, hey, there's a, a mutation in this signaling molecule in this cancer. And so this one molecule looks different in the cancer cells than it does in all of the other cells in the body. Let's design a drug that specifically targets this different molecule in the cancer cell. And the, the, the you know, gold standard example of this is Gleevec or uh, imatinib that's used for a, a type of leukemia that has a rearrangement that makes this one signaling molecule only present in the cancer cell. You can take this drug for it and it can stop the leukemia from growing, but doesn't really affect the rest of the cells in the body. And, and this type of therapy has had success now outside of leukemia to um, many other cancers, kidney cancer, lung cancer, many of them can be treated by these targeted therapies. So, so the targeted therapies, is, is that like immunotherapy? So immunotherapy, I'm putting in a different, it's its okay. own category. So chemotherapy, targeted therapy, and immunotherapy. And that's kind of like the three, well, how I, I mean, I'm not a medical oncologist, mm -hmm. but that's how I think about the armamentarium of systemic therapies. Can you explain a little bit more, obviously with your background being a lot on the nervous system and in particular glioblastomas, 
how many cancers metastasize to the brain or is that just kind of a, you know, only certain ones or is brain kind of one of the higher ones? Where, where does cancers usually metastasize? And then how is it treated from the brain uh, standpoint? Many cancers can metastasize to the brain. And the most common ones we see spread to the brain are lung cancer, melanoma, and breast cancer. The, uh, some cancers rarely spread to the brain. Um, for example, prostate cancer. It can happen, but it is, it is less likely. The way we treat a cancer that has spread to the brain depends a lot on how symptomatic that spot is in the brain and how many of those spots are there. And so those are two main questions. Another question is, do we know what that thing in the brain is? So one of the examples I gave you earlier was uh, a patient who had had three prior cancers and now has something new in the brain, but we don't know what that new thing is. We don't know whether it's you know, a lung cancer or a melanoma or a kidney cancer, and all of that factors into our uh, decision. What we say is traditionally the two main treatments for cancers that have spread to the brain are surgery and radiation, these local therapies. And uh, the reason we've said that for a long time is because chemotherapies targeted therapies, a lot of them don't get into the brain well because of this, you know, physiologic feature of the brain called the blood-brain barrier that prevents a lot of these uh, drugs from achieving effective concentrations in the brain and for some, you know, even uh, pumping, pumping the drugs uh, out because our body has developed this protective feature to, to prevent against, uh, you know, uh, poisons or toxins uh, enter, entering the brain. Uh, that's starting to change maybe a little bit. There are you know, drugs that can get into the brain, but for a, uh, I think it's still reasonable to think about, uh, for most cases, surgery and radiation being the two main uh, treatments for cancers that have spread to the brain. So first things first, if I see a patient who is having bad symptoms from a uh, spot in the brain, it's causing swelling, it's causing bad headaches or nausea or, or vomiting, uh, this is a patient who uh, almost always I will ask one of my colleagues in neurosurgery to evaluate to see if they think that there is a, an option to resect um, this tumor. That's uh, because this type of patient who is having a spot in the brain that's pushing on all of this has a lot of mass effect that needs more urgent uh, relief than we can offer with radiation or with you know, a, a systemic uh, therapy. So surgery is one of the, the mainstays of treatment of cancers in the brain. And even if there are, you know, larger um, spots of cancer that aren't causing uh, bad symptoms like that, surgery is often the first step. And of course, the other thing that surgery can get us that other treatments can't is pieces of tissue uh, to look at under the microscope, do molecular testing on and help aid us in the diagnosis if we don't have that diagnosis yet. And so um, those are the two uh, main reasons when I ask my neurosurgeons uh, to, see, to see a patient. Now, for a patient with you know, very small spots in the brain where we know that they have cancer elsewhere in the body, um, these are patients who, for whom you know, radiation by itself might be um, an excellent treatment option. And so a patient with a melanoma that has spread to several places throughout their body, but is you know, three new spots 
small new spots are found in the brain. This is someone that I'd feel very comfortable treating with focal high-dose radiation to those three spots, really to prevent them from growing and causing stroke-like symptoms, headaches, you know, these mass effect symptoms that I was mentioning um, earlier. And so, you know, those are just uh, two, two possible ways that we, we treat um, patients with whose cancer has spread to the brain. With these options of the existing options, are there clinical trials or is there research being done on, on other ways to be able to um, either better manage or to treat these kind of cancers? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, um, you know, the, we here at Michigan have a number of clinical trials open for patients with cancers in the brain. So for metastatic cancers that have gone there from elsewhere, there's an open question about whether you know, uh, I kind of gave you the example of a patient with uh, three spots of cancer, and I said I'd treat each one of those individually. But what if, what if I saw a patient with 11 spots of cancer? Should I treat pinpoint radiation to each of those 11 spots? Or should I treat with radiation to the entirety of the brain? Because, you know, I'm worried that if I treat these 11 spots right now and I get a repeat MRI in three months that there might be 11 more spots and some of them might be even bigger and causing um, the patient to get really sick. And so that's a question we don't know. So we have a uh, clinical trial um, opening very, very soon to ask that question. Patients with a, a larger number of metastases in the brain, should we be giving them focused radiation or should we be giving them radiation to the entirety um, of the brain? And, um, you know, there are risks and benefits of each, each approach. And I think most doctors don't know the right, uh, you know, don't think they know the right, the right answer here. And so that's where we're really trying to answer um, questions like this. We have other clinical trials that are working on, you know, the, the thing I, I mentioned about how do we make our systemic therapies that go through the blood work better um, for patients with brain metastases. And we have, there's an active research program focusing on patients with a certain subset of breast cancer trying to, to figure out are some of these newer targeted drugs actually effective for uh, patients who have uh, breast cancers that have spread uh, to the brain. So we have active trials um, open there as well. So there's, there's a lot um, going on, uh, both to try to figure out the best way to do radiation or surgery for these, but also to, to come up with some newer, newer therapies to, to try to help these patients. Uh, I want to back up a little bit on a mention of, you mentioned that lung cancer can metastasize to the brain. So my first part of this question is, it's interesting because don't some cancers also metastasize to the lungs? And so if that's the case, how do you know which came first and less does uh, do brain uh, tumors or brain cancer, do they spread elsewhere or is it because if it's in the brain, that's as far as it goes? Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question and it can, get, it can get complicated. A lung cancer that starts in the lung, uh, it, it really, let me, let me back up. A lot of this has to do with uh, the circulation of, of blood uh, throughout, throughout the body. If we think about, you know, the way the heart is pumping blood, you know, the left uh, ventricle pumps blood out to all of the body except for the lungs, right? Um, it is uh, pumping blood that has high levels of oxygen out to the, the kidneys, out to uh, the brain, out to, you know, all the muscles in the body. The body uses up this oxygen, and then uh, through the veins, it goes uh, back to the heart. And now the right ventricle pumps that blood that's low in oxygen out to the lungs. 
right? And uh, the blood goes to the lungs, then it goes back to the heart, and now it's got high oxygen, it ends back up in that left ventricle, um, and then gets pumped out to the rest of, of the body. And, you know, this is, we're talking about cancer, and why am I talking about, you know, the physiology of how blood is circulating through the body, but that starts to explain why lung cancers go to the brain so frequently, because cancer is in the lung, some of those cells, you know, uh, break off, they're in the blood, um, and then they go right into that left ventricle and then pumped um, out to the rest of the body, including the brain. It also explains why other cancers, like, for example, kidney cancer, might stop in the lungs, might, spots might develop in the lungs first and then go to the brain. So you can imagine a cancer in the kidney. Some of it, uh, some, some cancer cell has acquired some molecular features that allow it to break off and uh, spread through the blood. And it's, uh, the, you know, the blood is flowing from the kidney back to the lungs. So that's the first place they end up and spots of cancer might grow in the lungs. And that's again, kidney cancer now growing in the lungs and it grows there for a little bit. Uh, and then pieces uh, uh, break off again, and they go into now the from the lungs into the left ventricle and then get pumped out to the rest of the body, including the brain. Um, and so now we have a kidney cancer that has spread both to the lungs and to the brain. And so uh, cancers often, you know, we see spots of them in the lungs before uh, going to the brain, but, but not always. Uh, sometimes for whatever reason, that cell that breaks off of the initial cancer, it might have some uh, mutation or molecular feature that makes it want to go in the brain or grow especially well there. And so, yes, uh, and, and how do we tell the difference between all of these? It's really uh, based on the clinical setting and based on the molecular features of the cancer. So let's say um, I had a patient who had a kidney cancer that had spread to a lot of nearby uh, lymph nodes um, and had spread to the lungs. And we knew that because we had done a biopsy of a spot in the lung. And when we looked at it under the microscope, it didn't look like a lung cancer. It looked like a kidney cancer because of its uh, molecular features and the stains um, that our pathologists did. And let's say six months later, that same patient developed a new spot in his brain. Um, I, I would then say that uh, based on this clinical picture, this is now a patient who has a kidney cancer that has spread to the lungs, but also the brain. That we would, wouldn't say like, hey, is this a, a new lung cancer that has spread? Is this a new brain cancer? We would say, you know, just based on all of its features, we know how kidney cancer behaves. This is almost certainly just one more spot that your kidney cancer has gotten. If we had a different situation, you know, a patient who had a lung cancer five years ago that has a new, you know, we treated them, we thought they were cured. Um, and then five years later, there's a new spot in the brain. We would scratch our heads a little bit and say, this is probably from the lung cancer, but we don't know for sure. And is our uncertainty enough that we need to do a surgery? You know, is there cancer anywhere else in the body? If we found a spot in the bone and we biopsied that and that showed lung cancer, we would make the inference that this new spot in the brain is probably from the lung cancer as well. It makes more sense that a patient has one cancer that has spread many places than two cancers um, independently developed, both of which had spread. That, that can happen, but it's much less common. And if we couldn't find spots elsewhere in the body, we might, again, ask our neurosurgeons to um, help us do a resection of that spot in the brain to tell us, oh, uh, this is from uh, that lung cancer from a few years ago that we thought we had, we had cured. I would say all of this contrasts with um, the kind of cancer that I specialize in, which are the brain tumors that start in the brain, like 
glioblastomas or oligodendrogliomas or, you know, uh, IDH mutant astrocytomas. So these tumors, they are, they start in the brain and they stay in the brain. They don't spread elsewhere um, in, in the body. And so the concept of metastasizing doesn't really exist for, for these brain cancers. And so uh, they, they're kind of like a different beast um, than, um, than most of the other you know, lung, kidney, um, melanoma cancers that we've been talking about already. And what this means is a lot of the terminology that, you know, is commonly used for cancers, uh, I don't use it in my uh, day-to-day conversations with my patients. I don't talk about a glioblastoma metastasizing. I don't talk about this glioblastoma is stage two um, or this glioblastoma is, is stage four. You know, these things are graded. Uh, they are given a assignment of how aggressive they think pathologists think uh, they are, but, but they don't uh, get staged in the way a conventional uh, cancer does. And we, you know, we think the biology is that these things just need the environment of the brain to exist and to thrive, and that's why they don't spread elsewhere. But it also means that you know, for my conversations with patients, and I think a lot of our oncologists do this for, for other cancers as well, we're really trying to get across a, a meaning or understanding of what the diagnosis means. When I see a patient with a, with a glioblastoma, the most aggressive brain cancer that adults can get is what my lab specializes in. And what I usually tell them is this is a very aggressive cancer. It's a cancer that we have effective treatments for, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, a couple other things um, emerging. But the goal of our treatments for, for the most part is to push off the time until this tumor comes back. Only exceptionally rare circumstances would we think about talking about getting rid completely of, of one of these tumors. And so what I tell my patients is that you know, I've had patients with glioblastomas that I have treated, and sometimes we can push the recurrences off two, three years. But for some patients, those recurrence happen earlier. You know, we do our treatments over you know, three or six weeks, and sometimes by the end of treatment or a month or two afterwards, the tumors are always already coming back and causing problems. And what I tell patients is I, I explain to them that I do not know where they're going to fall kind of in these ranges, that yes, this is a serious cancer, but for some patients, it's you know, very, very bad within a matter of weeks to months. And for some patients, uh, they do well for a couple of years before uh, the cancer really uh, takes off. And for most patients, when I'm meeting them at the first, uh, the first visit, that is the information that I have. I don't know how they're going to do. I don't pretend like I know exactly how a patient, how long a patient is going to live. And as long as I can get across some of that uncertainty, you know, this is serious but uncertain, you know, that's really what I want a patient to, to take away and understand regarding their cancer. None of us know exactly how an individual cancer is going to go. Some go very badly, some go very well, and there's always, always, always a range. And that's important for a patient to know, even if you're told you have a metastatic cancer, is it possible to live for years and years with this? Yes. If you are told you have a, a very early curable cancer, is there a slight chance that things go badly and it spreads elsewhere very soon? You know, it's, it's possible. So, you know, I think really speaking with detailed conversations with your oncologists and having a healthy understanding of the uncertainty in, in all of this is, is really, really important both for uh, patients and for oncologists. Well, great. That's a lot of information and really appreciative. I think that these are questions I know a lot of people have been asking as we hear about 
celebrities and people we might know that have been diagnosed with, you know, whether it's a, a brain tumor, pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, late uh, lung cancer, uh, even some liver cancers where it always seems to be diagnosed uh, very late and, and people worry about, about that. So I think that knowing that there's a lot of vari- a lot of variables and that people can live a while with these kind of cancers, with, with, with the right uh, treatment, with the right knowledge and the right team um, and the right hope that they, they have themselves. So that's really good to know. Yeah, um, exactly. As we, we wrap up, and I really appreciate the time today, um, Dan, but as we wrap up, what would be kind of the, the takeaway message that you would like people to, um, to have after listening? The biggest, the biggest takeaway um, that I would want patients hearing this to, to think about is that every, every situation is, is unique and there's information that makes you know, one case different from another and that the words we use are not always uh, precise. So some patients with metastatic stage four cancers are cured and cured relatively regularly, a metastatic testicular cancer, a uh, lymphoma that has spread elsewhere in the body, still a very high chance of being able to, to cure these diseases. Some cancers, even if they haven't spread elsewhere in the body, can be, can be very serious. So even if a lung cancer isn't metastatic that's spread to the nearby lymph nodes or a, a pancreatic cancer that hasn't spread but can't do surgery on because it's um, in nearby blood vessels, that can be extremely, extremely serious. You know, a glioblastoma that hasn't spread elsewhere and isn't going to um, can still be very, very serious. And so, you know, instead of focusing on, you know, these words, you know, and, and one patient with a stage four cancer, it might mean, gosh, I, I'm sorry, but most patients with this, you know, end up dying within six months or so. And some patients with a stage four cancer, you know, many might live five, six, seven years. And so I would like patients to have an, an oncologist to have detailed conversations with one another about what does this mean for me with my exact cancer with the biology of my cancer, with the mutations that I have and the treatments available to me. I, I know there's uncertainty, but how, how do patients with this typically, typically do? What are, what are the, the ranges are we looking at? And, and not to focus so much on metastatic cancer equals I'm going to die or you know, locally advanced cancer equals there are no effective treatments for this. And just having a understanding of that uncertainty and one of the ways to fight it is by having you know, detailed conversations with, with your uh, oncologist. You know, the other big piece of this is that, you know, the, the state of the field right now does not equal the state of the field in, you know, one, two, three, four years from now. Um, and so all of us oncologists are working as hard as we can to make these treatment options better, right? And there's a lot of ways to make things better. We can make uh, treatments less toxic, we can make them less costly. We can figure out when the cancers arrive earlier or ways to diagnose them earlier so we can give more effective treatments earlier on. My, my laboratory is working on how to make radiation treatment more effective for these aggressive brain tumors like glioblastoma. There's clinical trials ongoing at Michigan and elsewhere for, for all of these uh, concepts. And so I, I think, you know, there, there is hope. Hope um, is important, and um, I think there is a plan to, you know, make that hope actionable. That in through these these clinical trials in two to three years, even 
you know, we could have uh, new uh, treatments available for these patients. So, you know, the, just the state of the ground right now is not the date in the future. And so, you know, uh, treatments are, are constantly improving. So uh, that's what I would just hope patients uh, take away with. Again, I appreciate the time today, uh, Dan, and um, thank you. It was my pleasure, Scott. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. And tell us what you think of this podcast by rating and reviewing us. If you have suggestions for additional topics, you can send them to cancercenter at med.umich.edu or message us on Twitter at umrogocancer. You can continue to explore the three P's of cancer by visiting rogocancercenter.org. 